the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my good friends Mike and Brian are hanging with me today. Mike, how are you today? Good, sir. I am doing pretty okay, James. How are you doing, Brian? About the same. How about James? Also okay. Okay. <laughs> this is going to prove to be the okayest episode we have ever recorded. Geek at Arms okay. episode 50-something. We're okay. <laughs> Has three downloads. <laughs> That's optimistic. <laughs> Oh, wait, that's just us. Okay. (laughs) Which which one of us did I assume doesn't listen? (laughs) Well, Mike, I understand that we had some listener feedback. Would you like to share that with us? Yeah, actually really exciting. I had a listener reach out and uh, because I apparently need to, to put this under the corrections and retractions of all of the mistaken things I have said. Apparently, if you say it about D and D, people notice. Um, yeah. So apparently, last episode I had said that Samson would be a poor example of a paladin, and we had uh, Gregory Oswald reach out to us and uh, let me know that there actually is a. It's either a subclass or an archetype of paladin that is called Oathbreaker that uh, Samson would fit nicely into. So that is a lesson learned. Don't talk about properties. You don't really understand point take. That's not what he said, but that's, that's what I'm choosing to internalize. (laughs) Greg, do you realize what you have done though? Because of this minor infinitesimal mistake that, Mike realized that he might have made, although unintentional and uninformed, it is going to destroy his confidence now. Yeah. It's going to wreck him completely. Very delicate ego. Just very, very delicate. Very fragile. That's why we have him run our Twitter account. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So here it is from Geek at Arms. I was wrong. Gregory was right. Are you happy now? (laughs) I'm sure he's somewhere listening going, Yes, very. <laughs> I actually got permission to tease him like that. So, yeah, I, oh, okay. I hope he is. Yeah. I don't tease listeners without their permission. Jeez. Okay. Gosh. Yeah. But you know, he only does that to his co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> the worst part of this is there's already a debate going on on the Christian Gamers Guild about whether or not an anti-paladin is actually a paladin. Okay. Yeah. Gregory, so if you want to enter that fray, that's, that's where you go. Because I am staying like way out of this. Yeah. Uh, We also had some commentary on our website. Uh, Phyllis Branson says, Hi there. This weekend is fastidious for me for the reason that this time I am reading this impressive educational article here at my house. So thank you, Phyllis, for that feedback, too. Do you know what? I think that, yeah, I'm so glad that AI has advanced the point where bots are listening and enjoying the show. So good for (laughs) y'all. May this podcast prove to the betterment of the AI community and hope to stave off the incoming AI apocalypse just a few more nanoseconds. I, for one, would (laughs) like to welcome our new AI overlords. (laughs) Hmm. Well, shall we head to Geek Out? I think we should. Who's going to kick this episode off? 
I'll take it. Uh, so I spent the last month and a half or so playing Baldur's Gate 3 feverishly mm-hmm. trying to get to the end of it because I knew that what was coming was Starfield. Oh, um, yeah. Which is Bethesda's new open world Skyrim slash Fallout-esque in space. Uh, so I've been playing that the last couple of weeks. I like it, but I'm also frustrated with it because I was all excited. Like, oh, I get to play Skyrim in space. I'm going to get out my throttle and stick, plug those back in. It doesn't work with those. Oh. So I'm really? flying my spaceship with a stupid mouse and keyboard. What Aww. do you think this is? Like the early days of TIE Fighter before we went out and bought our, our joysticks? <laughs> well, the thing is, it works with an Xbox controller just fine. Huh. I don't want to play it with an Xbox controller. I want to play it with my giant throttle and joystick with 96 switches and buttons. Yeah. I mean, uh, Brian wants uh, to throttle uh, something. I mean, don't don't yes. game makers know <laughs> yeah. this? So I was terribly disappointed because I got it all plugged in and then I'm going to the controls like, okay, so how do I set my axe? What do you mean it's not recognizing? This doesn't work with a joystick? I'm very sad now. It, it does Aww. seem like a pretty big oversight that if you're building a spaceship game and they have all these wonderful throttle and sticks. Yes, you should support them. Yeah. I would think so. So I might have to dig out Elite Dangerous again just and to get that. Uh, this is just my input, but playing a space sim, flying sim with an Xbox controller, not the best. Mm. I can imagine not. I mean, well, I don't even bother plugging in the controller. I've just been using the keyboard and mouse. I don't blame you. Since since we're we've already been talking about AI in this, I want to say throttle and stick. I support you, even if Bethesda doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good. I'm, I was going to have to take him to therapy, but I, I think your calming words will help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I there is an interesting thing. I'm finding that, you know, in, in Skyrim, you walk by somebody, they say something and says, oh, that sounds like a quest book. I'll go follow it. I don't feel the same, like, prompting in Starfield. They've got the same quest hooks. And they work the same way. But it's just like, I don't feel like I should butt in because this is a very civilized game. And that's not, if I'm just walking down the street and I overhear something, I don't walk up and say, where can I find that? You know? In Skyrim, you're in a world of literal Vikings. Manners aren't at the top of anyone's right. priority. Uh, so you feel fine doing that because it's part of the feel of the game. But this, it's the future. We're cultured. We're, we're educated. And uh, I don't, don't want to get involved. They're, they're, that's a very deep conversation. It would be rude of me to say anything. I really feel like my manners must be absolutely horrible because I have no problem saying to somebody on the street, Oh my gosh, that street food looks amazing. Where did you get that? Your quest lies that way. <laughs> and suddenly in the distance five blocks down he sees a blue pillar of light show up there if, is your talk if you're walking tra- by somebody who's like oh yeah we're experiencing some brownhouse down by cambridge you immediately feel a compunction to go and investigate that i mean uh <laughs> my house is in cambridge so well, that's true kinda like, <laughs> <laughs> if you said waltham i'd be like no they got it covered mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah i was like all, I've got all these little quest hooks piling up. It's like, I don't really feel like it's my place to get involved in any of those. <laughs> and the one that I did, I was like running around doing this, uh, collecting all these sensors and feeling like people are going to think I'm stealing stuff. People are going to know you're stealing stuff. 
There's a difference. It's, yeah. But, but I've got this little line in my in my journal that says I'm supposed to. <laughs> show that to the that's, space cops. Free and clear. That's what I, I was going to say that. I'm going to just show the space cops my journal. Like, see, I have to. <laughs> I'm curious. Do you ever come across a derelict ship? And when you get into it and open up a, a chest... And once you've broken the electronic lock, you open it, and inside are three gold, two arrows, and some fresh green apples. <laughs> um, yes, no, and yes. <laughs> I've not, not yet found any arrows, but I have found both gold and fresh apples. I don't know how long these fresh, in air quotes, apples have been in the safe on the space station that it doesn't look like it's had any life in the last 30 years, but... It's still shiny. So oh, I guess Bethesda. Preservatives in the future are great. Never change. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, Starfield, it's, I'm just barely into the, the beginning of it. I'm sure it's going to, to hook me pretty hard, uh, but so far it's just been, it feels a little strange. I used to be a star pilot like you, and then I took a quantum laser to the knee. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's two particular NPCs that follow you around for a little bit. And they have some conversations, but they've only got like three conversations and you're with them for maybe an hour. So it's like they just go through these three conversations over. I'm like, well, I want to turn around and say, would you two ladies just please shut up? We're trying to sneak here. <laughs> I saw A Haunting in Venice recently, which is the latest uh, Hercule Poirot starring. Oh, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. And that's about the. When it comes to Halloween-y movies, scary stuff, this is about my speed where it's like, ooh, there's a couple of jump scares. It's a little creepy, but it's not actually horrific. So I, I really enjoyed that one. I, I recommend it. It's a pretty good movie. I didn't see the second one he did. Something about the Nile. Joy and I watched Murder on the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what? We might have watched the one on the Nile as well. But it's been a while, and I don't recall. That probably tells us everything we need to know about the movie. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it was just as well that I skipped it Murder on the Orient Express though was fantastic yeah we really enjoyed it and I really liked Haunting in Venice uh, Tina Fey is in it oh uh, wow she's good mm -hmm. and I think I will defer my last one I was going to talk about our Woolheads podcast but I see that that is also on James's so let's talk about it when James talks so I will hand the football to Mike okay well I guess I'll go next um I'm going to talk about Woolheads. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a light geek month, but there's been something that I've been that I've been really excited about. Uh, something I've been really excited about, and that is uh, there has been a I would say a Kickstarter, but it's not a Kickstarter. It was a game found crowdfunding campaign by Restoration Games, which is the maker of Unmatched. Uh, I've talked about Unmatched on the podcast before, but just a quick recap. It is a short, quick, asymmetrical battle game where you have a figure, you have some cards, you have a battle map, and you you go generally one-on-one -on -one with heroes, and you also have a couple of sidekicks, maybe one, maybe three sidekicks at your side, and you duke it out in about 30 minutes. So delightful gameplay. It doesn't have a starter pack and then a bunch of expansions, everything's a starter pack everything's an expansion so buy what you like don't buy what you don't like and you can start just about anywhere since it has so many variations of this 
people have run into a certain storage problem, which is like, I have all of these boxes, which contain my cards, my figures, my counter dials. And while it's not a, it's not like X-Wing. So you're not, you're not bringing in a whole bunch of accoutrements, but if you've got four, five, six, ten expansions of this, it eats up a lot of shelf space. So the, the crowdfunding campaign was to engineer and supply a storage solution where you get 12 boxes in a box. Each one can fit one to two heroes. And so I'm like, well, that's cool. If I have about 25 heroes, if I get one or two of these boxes, then I have room for them all and then room to grow. And so I put up my money about a year and a half ago, which is what happens with, with crowdfunding. Um, <laughs> what was really kind of an interesting um, an interesting way of unfolding, because uh, this is a happy story and I'm super excited to have it. Um, Restoration Games was kind of learning a bit about this game, uh, the GameFound platform. And a lot of their users were, like me, used to Kickstarter. And so there were some things in the interaction that everybody expected them to go a certain way and they didn't quite. So, uh, it's, so it's been a long process for some of us because I, here's the one thing is that with Kickstarter, when it's like, okay, campaign is over. Okay. We've done the recalculations for all of your shipping. Uh Oh, we need a little bit more shipping. Would you fill out your, your user survey and you do, and then you pay your stuff. Or if you don't, then, either backer kit or Kickstarter or whatever will just pound you with notifications that <laughs> things aren't set up. I went through in the back end and it looked to me like, oh, what you paid is all good. You've paid your pledge. You're, I, what I read was that I'm all set and I wasn't. And it wasn't until everything was not only on the boat uh, and unloaded at the boat and at the fulfillment center, things were getting shipped out before I realized that there was a problem. And that's about the same time that Restoration Games was realizing there was a problem. So there were like literally not enough units to go around. Um, mm. But they actually have done a, like even though communication was slow, they did a phenomenal job in terms of triaging. And I'm trying to remember exactly the verbiage that they used uh, to to describe the situation, but it, it's clear that the company was was surprised by some of the interactions, just as some of the the crowdfunders were. But in the end, not only did I get the boxes that I had uh, that I had pledged for, but I'd had some interactions in the community that were really pretty beneficial, because the T Rex that they have for this game is huge. Like they said over and over again, don't expect your T-Rex to fit in your battle box. Like we tried, she will not be caged. And then once they <laughs> released all the battle boxes and they had bunches of people with uh, CAD software and 3D printers, they said, or can she be caged? <laughs> so I uh, got a hold of an STL file that kind of makes this this wonderfully little engineered uh, T-Rex caddy. So if you just pull out two of the cubes, she will actually just barely, but will actually fit along with her accoutrements. So uh, I got that and I was really, really happy with the way that all of that panned out. Nice. Cool. Now, Kickstarter had a lot of those 
kinds of problems years ago too. They've had a lot of time to work those kinks out. <laughs> and I don't know if GameFound is is new at this. Uh, I've I'd never worked with them before. Um, I I would really have to understand who it is that's working with them if I if I went that direction again. And I'm mm-hmm. I mean I'm already kind of gun shy when it comes to crowdfunding anyway. So the last one that I had kickstarted was was Magpie Games, but they'd already had an established reputation. They'd already made games. And yeah, I've just I've just seen too many crowdfunding things go bad for me to really go in gung-ho without having some sort of usually some sort of uh, uh, relationship with the company ahead of time and having some confidence that they'll make it right even if Mm -hmm. things don't go right as a precautious and wise stance to have and and i'm i'm actually really glad that that restoration games is being um is stepping up the way that they are like i I don't want to speak for the internals of their company, but I can't imagine how they're how they're making this all right without taking some kind of hit. And I mean, it might be a wise choice because the people that are buying storage solutions are the ones that have already bought enough of your products that it's a problem mm-hmm. for them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're probably anticipating buying more. I mean, I didn't buy two boxes because I thought I would fill them all today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was, I know there was at least one game company that got in, got themselves in some serious trouble when they offered the same shipping terms worldwide. Oh no. And somebody in like Japan bought like a whole lot of miniatures and like we, this is, this is eating our entire profits, just shipping to this one person in Japan because it was too expensive and it was too heavy. Yeah. It was like a 20 pound box shipped to Japan. I think that was on an article about companies that kickstarted themselves to death. Yeah. So that it's definitely an issue and you gotta, if you're not prepared for that, if you haven't uh, done your, your homework, you could get yourself in, in a lot of trouble there, but yeah, a company that's selling support for, something that is selling very well. Yeah. I think they're probably in a good place to be able to, to eat some costs. I mean, and that's also one of the reasons why I was, while why I was working with some confidence is that mm-hmm. these people aren't, th- this isn't their first product. So even if things aren't going to go right or smoothly, I mean, cause they're originally projected, Oh yeah, this will take a year. And then, Oh, well, we're having to engineer this and Oh, well, we're going to have to have this produced and uh, we didn't really like the first proofs we got. So they had to, you know, engineer and re-engineer to make sure that they get it just right. You could get a cruddy project now, or you could get a really nice product when it's right. And they made the right call, delayed it until it was exactly right. So I'm happy that they did. So that's my, my adventure in, in crowdfunding. Uh, so thank you so much, Restoration Games. Uh, I'm super happy with my battle box. <laughs> and this third-party independent individual with a 3D-printed T-Rex caddy. She can be caged, sort of, a little bit, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the only other geeky thing that I've been doing is, like, exciting and also kind of sad. I finished the last Expanse novel, Leviathan the Falls. 
So Oh good. Yeah. So I'm I'm prepared to say, okay, this book has been out a while, so I'm not gonna spoil the TV show for you, but a little bit of spoilers. I was really surprised at how they ended this. James, you've mm-hmm. you've read this, right? I have. And like the number of the people whom we love that die are really like as soon as James Holden injected himself with proto molecule, I was like, how is he going to undo this? The answer to that is he doesn't. Yeah. And the fact that he wound up shutting down the entire ring gates to save all of humanity was mm-hmm. um, from was, extra dimensional killer aliens. Yeah. Ex- I mean, as one does, I mean, one also like extra- for yeah. a series that started out so steeped in like hard science <laughs> that was quite the yeah, interesting was, turn like, it took at wow, the, the that's last not lap where I thought things were going to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that's the thing is that I, I have this theory that any science fiction series that has that many books, it's only a matter of time before in one of those books, somebody covers themselves in sand trout or similar. <laughs> And I, I think that the extra dimensional aliens trying to figure out different ways of turning off all life, injecting yourself with proto molecule to shut down extra dimensional um, uh, gates and still having Amos Burton there a thousand years later uh, to to greet the the new interstellar traveling humans um is is just is just the variety of weird that you that you have to get to if you write enough in a series i know just enough to recognize the dune reference that you snuck in there yeah i did i did not even read that book like look i i know what direction dude is heading i i read dune messiah and i'm like huh how much weirder does it get from here? Oh my word. Nope. Nope. Dune Messiah. And I'm done. I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, Herbert. I wish you well. I'm not, I'm not following that. Yeah. I am very happy that whoever was making the TV show, I think it was Amazon chose not to try to adapt those last few books into a season that would have just gotten weird weirder than it has been yeah yeah i was i was puzzled why they didn't keep going because the tv show seemed to be going really well but then those last three books pick up a story arc that can only have one end and stay even remotely true and it just kept getting like it never jumped the shark weird for me like it made sense in the context of the fiction um, and I'm sad that it's over because I don't have any more expanse novels to read, but I mean, I could read the novellas, but you know, m- maybe Meh. I'll have to be sadder to read those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, trying to adapt how humanity tries to incorporate protomolecule technology and then authoritarian, tyrannical, uh, formerly Martian rulers who are now trying to turn themselves into some sort of immortal God emperor of, of proto-molecule human hybrid is not going to go amazing on screen. See, I think James Corey, just author of the Expanse novels, I think he read some Herbert and some George R.R. Martin at the same time and, (laughs) you know, just got those blended in his conscious, had some weird dreams. Like, wait, I can do that? 
I can make a guy a god emperor and kill off characters in weird ways. But shoot, I wish I'd done this five novels ago. <laughs> yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed finishing the series. Kind of kind of wish I had more to read, but kind of glad that there's. Yeah, I think they brought it. They brought it to an end, and it, I think it was the right call. Well, if that wraps up your geek out, Mike, I'm going to jump into mine, and I invite you all and my co-host Brian to join me in talking about the second season of the Wheel of Time TV show from Amazon and the first season of our podcast, Woolheads. And so we've got about four hours of content for the rest of this one. Yep, so <laughs> buckle up. Spoilers are ahead. Um, obviously, as... Uh, Brian mentioned in the last uh, Geek at Arms episode, we had started up a podcast to watch and review the latest episodes of season two and just overall enjoyed it thoroughly. Just really mm -hmm. like the direction they've taken, what they've done with the characters. And it was never going to be easy trying to adapt so much into a handful of episodes. I still maintain vehemently that it should have been more than an eight episode season but what we did get overall i am satisfied with and i think there was only one which left me rather dissatisfied see i think that your your mutual enjoyment despite the things that you you guys dislike about some of the adaptations um, really comes through in in the episodes like i've never i've never watched any of the wheel of time I've been listening to Woolheads, not necessarily in order, because what are you going to do? Spoil it for me, because I, I make my own choices. Actually, I, that's our hope with most of our audience, that you don't watch the show, and you just take our word for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I will say that what I have gleaned from listening to Woolheads is that there's a guy named Rand. Mm -hmm. No, I was done. Okay. <laughs> well, really, that's all you need to know. That's so much of the gist of the books. There's a guy named I Rand. Think, I think that's kind of, with the question mark even, was a little bit how season two of the show went. Like, <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy named Rand. He might do some there's, stuff, but probably not. There's a great hunt. Will Rand go on it? I don't know. Is the hunt Turns for out, Rand? No. <laughs> Woolheads three, the hunt for Rand. No, no. <laughs> and we we did call the podcast Woolheads so that we would have a perfect excuse if somebody wants to disagree with us. Ah, we're just a couple of Woolheads. We're idiots. Yep. No sense in getting riled up about these guys' opinion. But we had a lot of fun recording it. It's a bit hard recording every week and editing and posting mm -hmm. every week, but I think we both had a blast at it. Yeah, it does make us kind of a little happy that it was only eight eight episodes. <laughs> I've been happy with 10. <laughs> a uh, traditional broadcast schedule of 24 episodes? No, not going to do that. Yeah, yeah no. right. <laughs> Otherwise, the um, the Woolheads episode would have been very truncated. Did you like the episode, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Woolheads. <laughs> <laughs> we ought to do that just a... Uh, a review podcast is just like eight seconds long. <laughs> Today we're reviewing Forging the Dark Sword by whoever wrote Forging the Dark Sword. It's kind of crappy. Don't read it. See you next time. <laughs> Cue the outro music. The intro and the <laughs> outro take five times as long as the actual content. <laughs> Those are bangers, though. Spared no expense.
Now I have to look that up. Forging the Dark Sword. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of excellent TV shows, I have been thoroughly loving the latest season of Star Trek Lower Decks. Hot as dang. I have every season that has come before this. <laughs> this show has just been, for the most part, fire, and I love it. I love the the constant humor and comedy that we get, the occasional serious moment. And there was a recent episode that really surprised me. Was it Moopsie? Oh my gosh, Moopsie. <laughs> Moopsie. I, if I, they don't start making those and selling them on the Paramount store, that honestly, where are their brains? Uh, the third parties are already selling Moopsie stuff. So it's... They got to. It's just leaving money on the table. I... I had tweeted at the director of that episode and said, I hope you're proud of yourself. And I mean that in all sincerity, because my Star Trek forums and boards are just full of Moopsie memes. And she actually replied with a gif of Tendi saying, yes, that's correct. (laughs) (laughs) They knew exactly what they were doing. (laughs) this show really has come into its own, though, because it's it has the the first season wasn't bad, per se. And it's actually better than other Star Trek series first seasons. Yeah. Um, but as other series grow, you know, as the second and third season come about, if they get lucky to have one, this one has just excelled. They've hit their stride. They know what they're about. And just for the most part have been enjoying it and and the actual character growth that we see among these four lower decks crewmen in a recent episode that just really kind of blew my mind. It was called empathological fallacies. The, the Cerritos has got three beta Z diplomats. Now, when I say beta Z diplomats, think three Luxwana Troys on a bender and And, not a robot, but just getting drunk. Um, (laughs) And the ship is there to continue their goodwill party and take them to Ryza. Well, anytime there's a telepath on board, things are going to get weird. And, of course, everything gets weird. It ends up not being the Beta Z who are, who are messing with everyone's minds. It's actually the newest ensign slash newly made lieutenant to Lynn, who they just added to the show. She's a Vulcan. And what really just surprised me was that I think so many people's favorite character, Boimler, now, Boimler's been, like, really stressed because he's a newly minted lieutenant. He's like, i got to get everything right. I can't relax. I've got to you know, focus on the job. And he gets recommended for a program with the security team. And he thinks, all oh, right, I'm going to learn some, some super secret uh, security methods and training. And he shows up to the meeting, and it's the members of Starfleet Security on the ship doing a slam poetry night. <laughs> The first person doing it is doing a slam poetry all about Worf, and I'm dying. They pull out this box, and it looks like it's, oh, no, now this secret ceremony is going to happen. They open the box, and inside are some funny tarot cards and a puzzle of the Enterprise NX-01 along with their chief engineer. Boimler is like, what is going on? Because they're relaxing. They're playing games. They're reading each other's future. It's just odd. But then the red alert goes off. And these guys like turn into like the Terminator. They're super focused, uh, hyper capable. They take down the Beta Zeds, who actually it's revealed that they're part of Beta Z Secret Service or whatever. 
later Boimler's like, wow, I just didn't expect you guys to, you know, also play games and encourage people to relax. The head of security, this giant Bajoran with like scars on his face, looks like he chews nails and spits bullets named Shax. He died once. He did die once, but we don't talk about that. Don't mention the Black Mountain. Anyway, he goes, we're in charge of protecting the crew. Sometimes that means fighting off invaders, but other times it means protecting your emotional well-being. Either <laughs> that was way, so sweet. It was so sweet. Either way, security has your back. Boimler's was like, wow, that's, and even I was saying this with Boimler, that's a very holistic view of your job. And <laughs> Shax is like, what, do you think we just sat around all day learning how to phaser people? Where, where's the help in that? And they go running off to do a puzzle again. Just the fact that it's shown a light on mental health and awareness and emotional well-being. It's something that this show has done several times before. And it's always going to make me happy when it does. And it also does a really good job of sub subverting the watcher expectations in positive ways. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one of the things that I think the show is really excelling at because it's it's kind of the easy pitch, the easy sell, the safe thing to do with a with a cartoon for grownups is just to cram in a bunch of juvenile humor that you can't put on network television and then call it an adult cartoon. Well, that's like what that's, so many other cartoons are doing in this day and age. Right. But this one is supremely intelligent this with one, the humor that it includes. Yeah. They've in earlier seasons, they are putting in the juvenile stuff. You know, for like, okay, that's gross. Okay, you're doing that because you can push the envelopes because you're a cartoon. Okay, we get mm -hmm. it. That's a thing. But this season, I feel like they're really growing into their yeah. own. I, and they realize they don't have to go that route. Right. And I think they're respecting the audience's intelligence a bit more in both that. We've got so many people watching who are, are huge Star Trek fans and are going to get the references. But there's also people watching who may not have grown up as Star Trek fans, but they're enjoying it now. And it's, yeah, they found their own tone, they found their own groove, and uh, they're they're really living into it. And I think that this season really, it's fire in all cylinders. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Lower Decks, fantastic. And to continue the sci-fi talk, I recently found a cartoon from my youth that I was honestly questioning if it actually existed. If it was something that I thought I saw and took elements from other shows and just built this story and characters and premise in my mind. Was it Jason the Wheeled Warriors? Thankfully not, because good heavens, I loved that show. <laughs> and a great show, even cooler toys. I had some of the toys as well. No, this was a show called Once Upon a Time Space. It was a... French science fiction educational cartoon that came out in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. It was animated in Japan, so it could technically be considered an anime. It was one of a series of cartoons that all started with Once Upon a Time, and they focused on different subjects as a edutainment-type show. There was Once Upon a Time Man... Life, the Americas, the Explorers, Planet Earth. But I can remember as a kid of like six, seven years old in the 80s, seeing Once Upon a Time Space, I think on Nickelodeon. That would have been the only network at that time that was showing cartoons other than the usual three o'clock to five o'clock in the afternoons and on Saturday mornings. 
I was sharing that with my children recently. Like, yeah, cartoons, there was no streaming. Cartoons only came on on uh, some TV stations from a certain time on the weekdays and a certain time on Saturday and Sundays. And that was it. I don't know if the look on their face was disbelief or just general disinterest. <laughs> I I am looking this up as you are talking, and mm-hmm. I have no recollection of this thing. So yeah. In some weird synchronicity, my friend Yolanda actually showed me some of Once Upon a Time Life just like three or four weeks ago. Really? Like I'd never heard of this. Yeah, it's, a, it's bizarre that it came up twice within a month. <laughs> it's calling to you, Brian. It's saying, come watch me. Um, but the Once Upon a Time space, less focus on like the education. It had an actual plot line and uh, several episodes were like more education focused. But there was a lot that I loved. The story, like it showed a very egalitarian future for all of these different species that come together to form a grand council. The president of this uh, organization was a female, even though most of the protagonists were male. There was a lot that was innovative of the time. It really pulled a lot from Greek mythology. Like there's a race called the Cassiopeians, the Scorpios, the Vegas. The capital of the Confederation is the planet Omega. It's far away from Earth. But the thing which stood out the most was the look of the cities and the spaceships, most of which are thanks to a French illustrator named Philippe Boucher. And that's what stood out in my mind the most and I had tried to find it a few years ago. Like I did a deep dive on Google, like searching for like cartoons shown on Nickelodeon in the early 80s, both series and movies. And I just I couldn't find anything. And so I just kind of consigned myself that, OK, this is like the Sinbad genie movie we all thought existed, but actually never did. And this is just a creation of my conscious. The Mandela effect. Yes, the Mandela effect. Exactly. And then an episode showed up. On my YouTube feed. Huh. And I had a very surreal moment. Is this happening? Like you couldn't find it for looking for it. But then once the algorithm figured you out, then, then. (laughs) And I would just like to point out, Mike has already welcomed our AI overlords. So thank you for sending this show my way. (laughs) I appreciate it. Let's just, you know, keep any future revelations on the down low, if you please. (laughs) Send me an email first. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. So I discovered that not only is it on YouTube, but someone has loaded all of the episodes on YouTube in English. So the last couple of weeks, I have been nostalgia-ing hard. (laughs) I actually showed an episode to my kids because I decided I wanted to have TV time and they could just watch what I wanted to watch. And they actually enjoyed it, which doesn't always happen when I show them cartoons of the past. There's a few times I've tried with other shows that I enjoyed as a youth, and they just couldn't care less. You know what? And I don't blame them. It's fine. But this one they got into a little bit. There were a total of uh, 26 episodes. I'm about halfway through them and just just enjoying them. And that is going to wrap up my geek out. Well, in that case, maybe we should talk about our film club. Yep, because this film club isn't big enough for all of us. (laughs) So we better get down to the last movie. 
I did not watch two films to prepare for this film for nothing. So we better talk about this movie. <laughs> One of them was like four and a half hours long. <laughs> I want to point out, though, that was all you. OK, that was not a requirement. That was purely a Mike decision. I made choices and I had to watch that other movie when Kaja was out of town because she was like, no, I am not watching a Kira Kurosawa movie that long with you at all. <laughs> So if you're all completely confused now, we're not talking about a samurai film or, well, actually, we are kind of talking about a samurai film because the third film in our Western Film Club is the 1960s The Magnificent Seven. Some of us just watched the about two hour long film. Others of us, it took six hours to watch the two hour long film. Uh, the reason why it took me so long to watch this movie is because this film is based pretty heavily off of Akira Kurosawa's uh, Seven Samurai. So given that was the source material and it inspired so much, I decided to watch both. Mm. Not in a row. <laughs> That's a long I, I decided day. to watch both also. And I started Seven Samurai at about 8.30 in the evening. And I got about 45 minutes in. I'm like, we're only up to two samurai so far. How long is this movie? I checked the runtime and thought, nah, I'm not doing that. What is the actual <laughs> runtime? Like, I've been saying four and a half hours. It can't be. It, yeah, it's it's more than four hours. <laughs> Holy cow. It's a <laughs> I was like, I no, I don't have time for this. That's that's like Fellowship of, of the Rings day. and up to meeting the Rohirrim and the two towers. <laughs> It was an experience, not one that I'm likely to repeat, you know, soon, but it was, it was there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess the question we have to start with is why this movie? And for me, like I had never seen this film before, um, either of these films, but I'd seen it so many times. I felt like we had to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The list that I came off off the top of my head, like how many times have I seen this film um, when I saw Seven Samurai and A Bug's Life and that one episode of The Mandalorian and that one episode of Firefly and an episode of Clone Wars. Like George Lucas just loves samurai movies. You're not <laughs> wrong. Mm -hmm. Joy and I were discussing this and we decided that another film actually did the same plot or the same story much more entertainingly and efficiently. They needed seven Magnificent Strangers in this movie, while another did it in Three Amigos. <laughs> like, Three Amigos is... I have not seen Three Amigos since I was in fifth grade. Why was a fifth grader watching Three Amigos? Well, you know, they didn't have parental <laughs> reviews in those days. So. Um, but the general plot of this film is... There's a bunch of raiders and there's a village and the village knows that the raiders are going to come back and pillage their village and they're tired of the being the pillage village. So they're going to go out and get some people to help them. And so they're going to be taught to fight or they're going to have somebody fight off the bandits for them. And in the end, the bandits are driven away by our heroes after a grand series of adventures. Yeah. And I've seen it probably more times than I could reasonably guess too. I mean, mm -hmm. We all know that I love Stargate, and that's basically the plot of Stargate <laughs> over and over again, from the movie all the way through all the shows. Yeah. And oh my gosh. then I thought Galaxy Quest, that's another one. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It's, the A Team, again, over oh, and over. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, between how many times we've seen the story redone, 
when you think quintessential westerns, this is one of those movies that pops into everyone's collective consciousness, along with such films as like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Unforgiven, and others. And mm. uh, I've stated before how I've got a soft spot for a good western, but this was actually my first time seeing the original. I got the 2016 remake uh, with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. Both are great actors. I love them both. In my opinion, they don't exude cool like Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Mm. I mean, all you need is Yul Brenner's voice. Yeah. That'll carry the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, right? Denzel Washington comes <laughs> close. Chris Pratt, not yeah, so much. My smooth voice. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this was actually the one when I was uh, taking a class on film history. This was the example that we had for the Western genre. And uh, as such, that's this is why I, I kind of harp on it a little bit because of this movie. Uh, and it kind of represents a, a, a turning point in the tone in the films and the subject matter. And there's a handoff between uh, from the, the old time directors. I mean, John Ford and his 60 or some Westerns uh, to this new generation of filmmakers. Uh, Sturgis, I don't remember how many Westerns he did. He did a a fair number of them, but this was one of his earlier ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Sergio uh, Leone, of course. But it starts from Brenner's character dressed all in black is kind of a symbol of the shift because the the previous uh, Westerns, you know, if you go to the the kind of chintzy ones, seeing cowboy stuff, you had the white hats and the black hats. And by putting Brenner all in black, we're saying, okay, well, he's our hero. He's our protagonist, but we recognize him as a man of violence, a drifter, and that he's aware of this. And then the previous films had mostly focused on cattlemen and veterans carving new civilization out of the wild. And this isn't the first one that centered a professional gunslinger as a protagonist. Um, but after this, that became the rule rather than the mm-hmm. exception. Along with the change in the focus of the protagonist, I feel like that after this is when we started to see an uptick in the violence that was seen in Westerns. Mm-hmm. Before that, there was a lot of talk. There was writing. There was scenic panoramic shots. And then usually that would all lead up to a climactic fight at the end, thrown in with an occasional small barroom brawl because, you know, got to have that Western trope. Um, <laughs> but after this movie, this is when you started to see it more prevalent you still have like the big ending fight because that's how these Westerns would almost always end. But violence became a part of the journey to get there. And the casual violence. Yes. That it didn't always, a killing wasn't always the big deal that it was in, in earlier Westerns. These are people that live by the gun and that's how they solve their problems. And so you're going to have people getting shot even when maybe that's an overreaction. But, you know, that's the world that they're living in. Life was cheap, and bullets only slightly cheaper. And we deal in lead. Yeah. There were so many good lines in this movie. <laughs> Particularly for a movie that had so little dialogue in I general. know, right? <laughs> well, let's take a moment and talk about the source material. Well, as we've said, it's based on Akira uh, Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai. I'd always been curious what Kurosawa would have thought of it. And then I read that he actually did see it. And had a discussion with Sturgis about it and told him that he found it entertaining and was very amiable and friendly with John Sturgis. Uh, he disputed, though, that uh, Sturgis's version was the true Western version of his film. Yeah, there is this idea that he says this is not like gunmen are not yeah. samurai. Gunmen are this not is, samurai. Exactly. This is not a samurai film. 
Uh, there was a sort of this urban legend that surfaced as early as, as I could trace it back to, or I should say the sources that I read could only trace it back to as early as 2002 that said Kurosawa was so impressed with the film that he gave Sturgis a ceremonial sword, some say a samurai sword, or some just say a sword. Um, some embellishments say he gave him a katana. Like, okay, well, I can't find anything within Sturgis's lifetime that indicated that Kurosawa thought that highly of the film. But it is it is a story that's out there. Hmm. Yeah, I read that too. I didn't realize it was apocryphal. Well, I'm not saying it's apocryphal. I'm just saying we don't know what the source is. Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. More serious. This is our biblical scholar, by the way. <laughs> our listeners know this is not the first time I've played stupid on the air. <laughs> or maybe they don't. Oh, geez. Okay. Anyway. No, they take everything that you say completely seriously, Mike. Oh, goodness gracious. Listeners, they really are to... scared about AI right now. Yeah, we need to have a talk, listeners. Um, and mostly it's going to be me talking <laughs> since I can't hear what you're saying. Anyway, <laughs> this film, of all the various versions that I've seen of, of Seven Samurai, this one more closely mirrors the structure and even character moments, even some recreations of scenes that we saw in, in seven samurai. Like the, there's uh, especially when you had uh, Chino who comes into town and he's ringing the bell and he's gathering the troops after everybody's just hidden from these gunmen. And then he gives them all a telling off. Like that is like right out of seven samurai. And so it's very obvious rather than just drawing on similar themes and drawing on broad brushstrokes, there are recreations of, different scenes with representations of characters from uh, from Kurosawa's film. So all that to say, this is the closest to the source material, but there's, I think, some improvement on the source material. Uh, the pacing, as slow as I found uh, a film written in the 1960s in a, in a genre that I'm not terribly familiar with, um, pacing is one of those things that was kind of difficult for me to adjust to. But it is so much faster paced than Kurosawa's <laughs> originally film, original film. Uh, and also, I think that having Chris as the focal lens character really was an improvement on on Kurosawa's vision of the film. You know, I only, as I said, I only saw 45 minutes, half an hour of Seven Samurai. It looked to me like Shimada was going to be fulfilling that same role. Did Was he weakened as, a, as the, I don't want to say weakened, but less central as the movie went on. I mean, maybe he was meant to, and there was just so much of the film. Um, but I didn't find that the samurai maintained a focal point during the entirety of the film. And and I'm not saying that they were just like a Dwalin, Balin, Keely, Feely, Dori, Nori, Ori, <laughs> Olin, Gloen, Bifer, Bofur, and Bomber, but they... Wow, that was all, really all 12 of them, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't mention Thorin Oakenshield, but here we are now. Oh, now you have to start over. <laughs> well, it's because, okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll say why I said that, is because Thorin had a distinct character. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the dwarves, though they may have popped up as, oh, there was this characteristic. Oh, and so and so was this. They really... <laughs> that's the fat one. That's the old one. That's exactly that really like they were really one character 
except for, you know, those moments that they took a moment to distinguish one from the other and gave somebody a line. Um, the seven samurai, with the exception of of Chino, there were some that that popped up, but none of them were really a perspective character, I felt. Or maybe I don't think that each of them sustained that perspective in the film for long enough. Or maybe it just got too long for, for my limited attention span in <laughs> a language that I am not familiar with. And also there's there's a particular dramatic style that Kurosawa's films have that is very different from the American Hollywood experience. So did I get lost in it or did they get lost in each other? Either one's a possibility. And there's probably also the differing cultural expectation. You know, America is all about, I'm special, American exceptionalism, yeah. all of that. Whereas Japanese culture is very much about consensus and people, the community being a unit rather than individual people. So maybe they just disappeared into one another because that was the cultural expectation that we have these seven samurai and now they are seven samurai as a group instead of seven individuals. Yeah. But as I said, I didn't watch the movie, so I'm just blowing smoke. (laughs) No, I mean, they had their own individual characteristic, but I never read one as the perspective person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, Listeners, why don't you go out and watch seven samurai and tell me how wrong you think I am. I would love (laughs) to get your messages. Please pause this podcast now and return in four hours. Well, five, four hours to watch it and one hour to deal with what you just did. Yeah, no, you, you uh, bathroom breaks, get some popcorn. Believe me, you'll yeah. need them both. <laughs> no, it was an amazing film. And also, you know, bathroom breaks and popcorn. So, yeah, while this wasn't exactly a remake, this this feels like a it, it feels like a an American re-rendering of mm-hmm. of the same tale. Much more so than some of the other later yeah, renditions. One of the things that I note about the later renditions is that they make the the training and the battle the main thing, whereas fully at least a third of this of this movie, and I don't know how much of Seven Samurai was focused on assembling the team and finding uh, finding these guys that were going to do the work, and that was a much bigger part of this story than it is in most of the retellings. I think that in most of the retellings, it's because they want to keep it really snappy. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're all most of the ones that we referenced were television shows. So right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also a lot in Kurosawa's film. There's also a lot of drama that happens in town. Like some dude shows up to his training and he has a samurai spear, and so there's the question: Wait, where did you get that? And so there's this whole unfolding of like, oh my gosh, under one of these houses, there's a whole bunch of samurai armor and samurai weapons. So guys, does anybody want to tell me about the samurai you killed out from under this gear? Um, and so there's <laughs> there's dramatic tension there in the town. Um, also, we've got to hide our women folk from these samurai who are just going to get pawsy and smoochy all over them. Spoiler alert, one of them gets pawsy and smoochy all over one of the ladies. Um, and you know, there's this, there's this crisis in town. Like, didn't we tell you what, what these people were like? Um, what do we do with the old guy who refuses to come in from his house? Oh, the bandits are burning that house. You know, so there's, there's a lot that they explore, um, between the samurai and the town that just doesn't make it into the Magnificent Seven. 
And I'm okay with that. <laughs> because we didn't want another four hour movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can see where they allude to these points, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make it in. I don't think we can get away talking about Magnificent Seven because that's the topic, not Seven Samurai. <laughs> we can't get away without talking about the music. Oh, agreed. Yes. Because if this isn't the most famous Western score, it's a close second behind Morricone's Good, Bad, the Ugly. Now, it's a theme that I have heard a hundred times before in other media. I never knew it was from this movie. Same here. And the soundtrack, not just that theme, but all of it is easily one of the best parts of the film. I think it gets used in a lot of commercials for burger places. (laughs) (laughs) But along with how good the soundtrack was... I also really enjoyed the scenery. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about the filming locations for a moment. Uh, When you think about classic Westerns, they tend to bring arid deserts and dusty, depressing towns to mind. Now, the Western town we see at the beginning of the movie does follow that trope. The Mexican village was set in a very picturesque location, as was the journey to it. I found out that the movie was shot in Mexico. And as someone who has actually hiked through some of the mountainous areas south of Guadalajara, the scenery there is beautiful, and I'm glad to see they took advantage of it. Well, I wondered about uh, where they were shooting because every single other Western is shot in Monument Valley, and this clearly wasn't in Monument Valley. Mm -hmm. I just want to know where they were growing the corn. Behind the camera. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got a lot of characters to go through. Should we start on them? Yeah, I don't think that we want to follow, probably want to go in any real depth because there are quite a few of them. Well, also uh, some of them didn't have any real depth to begin with. That's true. Yeah. Uh, which ironically is kind of our central character, Chris, played by Yul Brynner. We don't get very much insight into him at all. He's kind of like a the player's character in Starfield. You know? Oh, look, a quest hook. <laughs> and I'm kind of okay with that. As I said earlier, Yul Brynner just brings a smoldering coolness to the role. He's this mysterious Mm -hmm. man in black. We get hints about his history simply by the fact that when he meets other dangerous men, they know him on sight and by first name. Mm -hmm. His performance is really what kept me anchored to this film. Like that was an incredible screen presence. Like Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen a lot. I don't know from hat to boot. (laughs) This guy just seemed to bring everything to the screen and he just filled every inch of that role. And he probably single-handedly was responsible for any commercial success that it had, because I think they said something like 57 million tickets were sold in the Soviet union, almost entirely because Yul Brynner is from Kamchatka. Yeah. Like this film, this film underperformed in the United States. But it was mm-hmm. it's international. Uh, it did gangbusters overseas. Yeah, yeah, and his uh, his man of mystery archetype, I think, was probably directly responsible for Eastwood's Man with No Name. Mm. Mm. I'd buy that. Okay, so moving we, on from yeah, hmm? shall we talk about Vin played by Lightning McQueen? <laughs> <laughs> Is that why he every time he'd pull his guns, he'd go ciao? Yeah. That's, oh, wait, that's I may have imagined right where that. Where came from. <laughs> uh, so this was his breakout role. Uh, he didn't even want to play it at first because he had so few lines. Sturgis promised to keep the camera on him a lot. It's like, 
I don't think that he really compared the number of his lines to the number of total lines in the movie. He just seen, oh, I actually come out better than I thought. Just mm-hmm. because there's an awful lot of significant glances and hand talk in this movie. <laughs> but uh, apparently uh, Brenner was unhappy with him for uh, always having a little bit of physical action in the background of the shots. Brenner felt like he was being upstaged. Yeah. I don't know if it's true. I really hope that it is. But apparently McQueen's a little bit taller than Brenner. And (laughs) Brenner would keep on with his feet making little dirt mounds to stand on so that he would appear on camera just as tall. And whenever he would, McQueen would just keep kicking him out from underneath him. Like it's yeah, this is the bit of lore very, surrounding the film that makes it just it, a, like it's juvenile and grade school playground drama enough to make me think that it could be real. Yeah. And they say that it that it bled over into the rest of the cast that they were trying to upstage each other. And through it's only by the power of editing that this thing even comes together at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I I'm I'm sticking to that story. Well, there must not have been too much rancor on the set because a lot of these fellows worked together uh, in a lot of projects afterward. Mm -hmm. And they had great on-screen chemistry. So if they just hated each other, then I don't know that Brenner and McQueen ever worked together again. I didn't notice, but a lot of the others showed up in a lot of titles together. In some ways, a little bit of upstagery is is not a bad thing. One of the Mm -hmm. things that that I love in a film is when I see that there is a character interacting when they have no lines. <laughs> that really anchors me to to a scene. Like, there's nothing worse than seeing a low-budget film where somebody's just kind of staring off into space, waiting mm-hmm. for their turn to speak, or just intently looking. But if they're engaged and reacting more than you than might be natural, it makes you feel like they're they're involved mentally and emotionally in what's happening and it makes it easier for me to get involved in what's going on on screen yeah and i think a lot of a lot of vin's uh background business really really added a lot to the the film and the sense that this is a guy that's got something going on inside his head he's constantly being active and contributing to what needs to happen even if as an actor he's been kind of a jerk Well, shall we move on to the uh, kind of, but not quite actual protagonist of the movie? <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, Chico. Oh, gosh. Like, you're yeah. like, so he has something going on in his head. On to somebody who has nothing going on in their head. Let's talk about Chico. <laughs> yeah. Like, pure sensation. Pure, pure impulse. Mm. Yes. Um, I promised not to talk too much about Seven Samurai, but I'm going to break that <laughs> promise now. Because this character is almost one of the most direct ports of some of the most exacerbated, larger than larger than life characters um, in Seven Samurai. He has an overwhelming number of Kukachiyu's scenes and plot moments, his wild, brash nature, his entire lack of emotional regulation are clearly drawn from um, from Tishiro Mufune's performance. And so I, I can't not make mention of the fact that this guy is doing what he's doing deliberately mm-hmm. as an as participating in that in that other film. On a side note, was Tishiro Mufune also an actor in The Hidden Fortress? Yes. Pretty darn but, sure. Yeah. Okay. 
and like pretty much all of Akira Kurosawa's films. He just reuses the same people. Gotcha. All right. He's he's basically the Quentin Tarantino of his day. Understood. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, as much as, as uh, Chico doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, thought in his head, he's got an awful lot of emotion. And I think he's got the most <laughs> complete emotional journey of any of the people in this film. He's the, he's the one who actually mm-hmm. has some some interior conflict and resolves it at the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, everybody else, I think the only other person who has something that he really resolves is Lee. Yeah. And we get like 45 seconds of his emotional journey. Yeah, it felt weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After watching Chico, one thought I had was a halfway decent country artist could write an entire album about Chico's emotional journey in this film. Um, <laughs> and each song different from the next. I do want to give props to the actor. I do hope it's the actor. It might have been his stuntman. I don't know. But there's a scene in the climactic battle where you see him pulling a bandit off of their horse. The horse falls as well. And as it hits the ground, Chico climbs into the saddle as the horse is getting up and running off. And it is smooth. And the whole ordeal takes less than five seconds Grabs the guy. Horse hits the ground. He's in the saddle. Horse gets up and rides off. It I can't was... imagine it would be easy to choreograph something like that when you've got no. a horse involved. I almost think like that had to have just been a completely happy mistake that he just took advantage of and got on. And they decided that that looked better than whatever it was they actually had planned. That scene actually was one of the most carefully planned rehearsed and practiced it took 200 tries to get that scene and it was too dangerous to do with the horse so that's actually a puppet no it is not i'm making all of that up (laughs) that makes any sense that makes no sense in fact it was two guys in a horse costume yeah because henson studios wouldn't have been around at that time and even if they had the horse would have had much bigger eyes and would have had a couple of lines. <laughs> Jump to... on my back, Chico. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, but not sorry. <laughs> what about Brit? That was such a disappointment. I'm so sorry. For someone they built up so cool. That scene with him in the duel with the other worker by the train, such a famous scene. Mm -hmm. He brings a knife to a gunfight and And wins wins. handily. Twice. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He also had one of the best lines later when they are captured by the bad guys and are set free out of fear of retaliation from the Seven's friends. They're sitting there wondering, okay, do we go back? Do we leave? And Britt is putting his gun belt back on, looks at them and says, no one throws my own gun at me and tells me to leave. Yeah, that's when I started getting disappointed with the film. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> At that point, it's like, okay, so all of this murder that's going to happen from this point forward, these, spoiler alert listeners, these villagers betrayed you Uh, turned you over to the bad guy who then tossed you out of town and let you live. And now the rest of the bloodshed is about your ego. Well, the bloodshed was always about his ego. I mean, that was the, 
one of the first things that Chris said about him was that he's in competition. If he can't find somebody to compete with, he's competing with himself. He's not going to lose. All right. Fair enough. I actually thought that when it came down to that, to that choice, leave town, turn over your guns or leave town, like, aha, aha, they built this, they built this up earlier in the film that this guy's better with a knife than most people are with a gun. This is Mm -hmm. where it's going to be. He's going to leave his gun and he's going to use his knife to create enough. No, no, that's, that's not it. He just, he just (laughs) gets shot. The only other time he throws it is when he's in his death throes. Like that makes no sense. Like this was a Chekhov's gun. You could have used it once rather than it just being a prop for the rest of the, like, yeah, he's the guy who also carried a knife. Okay. Yeah. His was the death I was most disappointed in because it just ever, everybody else who died, well, maybe not Harry, but they died dealing with whatever their issues were, but Brits, you know, just random. Oh, I got shot in the butt cheek. Oh, oh shoot. I just got shot in the other butt cheek. Well, <laughs> I guess that's a lot of blood. Uh, uh, I didn't see going out dying from a butt cheek wound next to a butt cheek wound. <laughs> that's not what happened, but. <laughs> me as well like, wow i must have watched the director's cut or something <laughs> his new nickname was dimples <laughs> that's the type of thing they would actually put on a tombstone <laughs> oh. we knew him in life as brit we knew him in death as dimples <laughs> the only other character i thought had anything terribly interesting going on was lee played by Robert Vaughn. I wish we'd gotten some indication about his mental state prior to the first battle. Because I was like, why is he mm-hmm. not shooting at anybody? He's suddenly having a panic attack. He's supposed to be this ice cold gunfighter. Yeah. But we had no clue that he had the yips up to that point. Yeah. Yeah. It uh-huh. seems that they were fine giving the audience the same amount of information about these gunfighters that the villagers got. <laughs> almost as if we're sharing in their perspective. Which I think that there's a certain artistry to that in the storytelling. I think that they just have to make these moments compelling enough, particularly and especially if they're going to delay the story advancement for the sake of them. And I don't mm-hmm. feel like they they hit that quite evenly. That's actually one of the criticisms that I have of this film is it feels like we we got to the point where Uh, We've had our first battle with the bandits. And what I kind of expected was for action and respite and action and respite and action and resolution. Um, And maybe not quite so many, but, you know, I figured it wouldn't just be one gun battle. Instead, it looked like we got action and respite and then action and then, um, then character development, then plot twist, then character moment return action resolution. Um, and I, I felt like this movie kind of got in its own way in terms of the flow, uh, with, you know, with the plot twist, the uh, plot twist being the villagers decided they weren't happy with this life of violence. Uh, and they thought that they would be better off under the bandits, um, rather than having these series of gunfights where more of them might die. So they said, Hey bandits, we'll, we'll take your rule instead of, instead of their help. I feel like there was a, a scene missing with Sotero actually, you know, performing the betrayal. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my question. Like, how did like, they communicate is, with them? <laughs> did like the villagers take a vote and decide, no, we're going to go back to the loving arms of Calvera? Or was it just a small number of them who snuck Calvera and his men in and let them take the town over? It's just not really clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it could have made it more dramatically interesting if there were a couple of villagers who decided to turn traitor because they were cowards. And it mm-hmm. would have made the reaction of the rest of the villagers more interesting in the end. And it also would have gone a long way in justifying the Magnificent Seven's decision to stay. Yeah. Instead of mm-hmm. just flat out hubris. And some of them actually like the villagers, want to see them free. But then there's others were like, well, you know, there might be treasure. Or, nope, I'm not going to be beaten. Or, I've got nothing better to do. I'm just going to follow you. <laughs> Looking at you, O'Reilly. <laughs> Speaking of O'Reilly, um, man, I did not recognize Charles Bronson at first. <laughs> Neither did Charles Bronson. <laughs> For a man who's done so much in his later movie career, I was a little disappointed that the totality of his personality in this movie was, I'm doing this for money, even though it's only a little bit. And now I've got three boys who look at me as father. Well, I thought the totality of his character was shirtless cutting wood, but that's fine. They get a little hung up on that scene, but that's okay. We all did. You know, they could have left it there, though. You know, these three boys who were angry about their own dads being cowards or found a hero and are constantly hanging around him, staying up late, saying weird things like, we'll put flowers on your grave. That's not creepy at all. And we oh, might be even as happy as if you survive. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And <laughs> apparently they really wanted to do the whole flower on the grave thing because, you know, ultimately they're the reason he gets killed. Yeah. Um, I appreciated that they took the time for him to berate them about their dads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, I'm not a hero. I'm a hired gun. Your dads are the brave ones. Your dads are trying to keep you alive. They're trying to keep you fed. They have responsibility. And you need to understand that. Yeah. After I get my $20, I'm out of here. Your dad's going to raise you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) As a dad, I appreciated that they included that. I would have loved more from the character, but considering that there's a lot that needs to happen in two hours and we've got a lot of characters to deal with, I'm fine with what I got. Yep. I've got like nothing to say about Harry Luck. Yeah. (laughs) Well, then let's, let's not say a lot about things we don't have a lot to say about. Yeah. Yes. He literally shows up to the end just to get killed. But anyway, moving on. I said too much already. Um, (laughs) We could say more about the bandit chief, Calvera. Uh, Okay, interesting actor note. When he went out training with his horsemen, uh, the horsemen on set actually kind uh, kind of adopted him. And when they went out on their daily rides, they they took him with them like he became (laughs) one of the writers so there was like some companionship there which i think is really pretty cool there was a scene which impressed me after the the seven and the townspeople spring their initial trap you see calvera and two other men are like jumping over walls jumping over fields and it's it's a long, continuous... It's like the longest shot in the movie, I think, of them riding for their lives to get out of town. And it's some pretty impressive uh, horsemanship. And the fact that they're all running and jumping side by side in unison in this very long shot. 
and it just looked very well done. And I wonder if it was the two writers were the other men doing it with him. That is a great question. Like I said, it's a great shot. Uh, mm -hmm. Nice looking horsemanship. I think you know more about horses than I do. <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 there certainly were a lot of complicated shots with this and it was, it was interesting. I put, yeah, unless somebody tells me how complicated it is to do a shot with horses, I have no idea how complicated it is to do a shot with horses. <laughs> well, Mike, I have fallen out of a saddle in my day. Yeah, me too, but it wasn't <laughs> on a horse. I mean, this is what's so embarrassing. <laughs> Well, it was a horse. It was just one of those plastic ones out in front of the Walmart. Don't you shame me in front of our <laughs> listeners, Brian. I paid 25 cents for this. <laughs> Never seen anybody thrown by one of them before. It would have been so bad if I wasn't 20 at the time. <laughs> well, I think our conversation on this one has run down. Are we ready to call it? I'm ready to call it. Yeah. Since I've I've rated the other prior films, I'm going to go ahead and give this one uh, five out of six shooters. Um, <laughs> well, you, know, you say that the Magnificent Five was the best in the series. <laughs> All right, fine. Then I'll give this film six out of seven samurai. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we will head to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, are we facing it alone or are seven strangers coming out of the sunset and with the rising sun to help us in our time of need? Yeah, as easy as it would go to to uh, pull another seven samurai plot out of this one, I am going to subvert co-host expectations. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to respond to a uh, to a new article out by Wanderoo, and my plan is get out of Boston uh, because they raided the top cities to live in if you are having a zombie apocalypse and the top worst cities to live in if you are undergoing the zombie apocalypse. Apparently, Boston ranks at number two worst city to be in. Mm. Uh, given the, Wow. Yeah. Hosed. Really. It's because they had cited the low number of farmlands in the area and wilderness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Food is going to run out fast. Uh, we don't have uh, any large number of hunting stores. Uh, there's not a lot of guns to to buy or to raid or anything. Uh, and so the best thing that Boston has going for it is that it's easy to escape. Like there's a lot of routes out. So, um, yeah, looks like uh, look looks like I'm I'm going to go visit. I'm going to go visit. Uh, anybody I can and not in Boston. So uh, based on this article, how, uh, how much trouble am I in in LA? Oh, like a lot. Like, dude, yeah. we yeah. need to um, uh, Brian, according to the article, if Boston is number two, LA is number six. Uh, hold on. I actually think that, uh, no, uh, uh, San Francisco is number one worst place to be. So, we're going to be bunking with yeah. you, James. Well, LA's yeah. got all of the problems of Boston, plus it's not easy to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, looking at the top 10, and California has two, three, four, has half of them. <laughs> Let's see if uh, if Dallas or Fort Worth makes the... Dallas, no. you got plenty of guns. Oh, yeah. That's the one thing we do have is, you know, well, San Antonio's bad, but that's weird. 
Uh, okay. Uh, Dallas is number 44, Fort Worth number 46. So we can hold out for a while. All right. Well, it's a long hike, but I'll do my best. <laughs> best cities to be in during the zombie apocalypse. Kansas City made number one. Oklahoma City made number two. But most people aren't going to go to Oklahoma City because eh, it's Oklahoma City. I don't want to go there. It's uh... Anyway. That is going to wrap it up for us today on Geek at Arms. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what what is our Twitter? Our egg, what is what, what what even is it now? Oh, Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we are still Arms Geek on, on Twitter, or if you know, if you're calling it X, it's that too. Uh, but we're also now on Blue Sky and Instagram. So if you want to interact with us on either of those Bluetooth places, um, or actually all three of those places, um, feel free to reach out. Give us a review. Leave us a like. It really does help the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 